I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. But if you would, open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4, and we'll be starting in verse 10. And we're going to be talking about a few different things today. We're going to talk about uh, gifts or stewardships, um, reasons for suffering, um, like actually go through a list of reasons, according to the scripture, why people suffer. Um, so that'll be fun. <laughs> that'll be fun. And we'll see how it goes. <coughs> okay, so 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, starting in verse 10. We're receiving a, a list of uh, ways to apply uh, the love of Christ into our lives, to live it out. And it's very much focused on application at this moment. Um, in First Peter, we've gone through theology, application of it, you know, just these various different things. So here we go. <clears throat> Verse 10 says, As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Now, it starts off by saying, as each one has received a gift. And I remember being younger in my walk and the discussion being, what gift do you have? And then you would look at a list of gifts you find in the scripture, like word of wisdom, word of knowledge, this, 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 this. And you're going, which one of those is for me? And I've, I've since sort of, sort of changed my perspective on this. Um, it seems to me that those gifts sometimes come in for a moment and are gone. Some of them, you tend to manifest this gift more often than, than others. But it's not as though you just sort of call it up like, oh, I got a word of wisdom. Hold on. There it is. I'm ready. Here's the wisdom for you. But there is sometimes even multiple giftings that a person has. And I think that, in fact, in this passage here, we should not limit those gifts to spiritual gifts. I think that is, as each one has received a gift, minister it to one another. In fact, look at the verse right before it. What does it say? Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. That's just showing hospitality. Whatever goods I happen to possess, I'm generous with those things. So in that context, connected to that verse, these gifts could be anything from the fact that, for instance, I have an eight-seater car. My car seats eight people. And so I loan it out to ministries to use, to go to Mexico and do the Hands of Mercy building and things like this. Uh, we take it up on camps when we take the youth up to camps and stuff like this. I, I go around and pick people up and drop people off. That's That's what I do. I mean, there's... I've received a gift. In fact, somebody practically gave it to me. <laughs> so, and so I'm, I'm just ministering that gift unto others. I think that we should consider whether you happen to have wisdom or knowledge or whatever your gifts are. We should also consider that this verse here, verse 10, this re- each one has received a gift happens to be with just whatever gifts you've received. What is it that you've received? Your finances are gifts you've received. Your skills are gifts you've received. This is why the runner can run the marathon. And then as the atheists, they love to complain about this guy, right? He runs the marathon and then he wins. And then he goes like this. And he points to the Lord and he's like, yeah, God gets the glory. And the atheist gets mad. He's like, you ran that race, not God. And the runner's like, but God gave me legs. I didn't, you know, make them myself. Like this was something God designed and he gave it to me. And so that everything I have, I've received as a gift from God. And as I've received gifts... I should then turn and use those to minister to others. Like it says in James that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights. So that these things come from the Lord. We are, the word for it is stewards. We are stewards. S-T-E-W-A-R-D-S. Stewards. I'm a steward of the things that I possess. I don't exactly possess them. I'm just a temporary holder of these items and of these gifts and of these abilities including of my eyes and my ears and my mouth and everything else I have. There are some really important words that are being lost out of our vocabularies nowadays. We're sort of losing these really wonderful words. One of them is stewardship or steward. I find myself teaching and I'll say, well, you know, be a good steward. Make sure you have stewardship. And then people look at me like, did he say steward? Like, you know, what is he talking about? Well, a steward is someone who temporarily possesses what someone else actually owns. And they have to give an account for what they do with it during that temporary time. 
a possessor is a person who says, the person who owns it, is a person who can look at what he has and says, what do I want to do with this? But the steward looks at what he has and says, what does my master want me to do with his stuff? The possessor says, is it worth it to me to spend my time or energy or talents on this thing? Is that worth it to me? But the steward says, is it worth it to my master for me to spend my time, energy, or talents on this thing? And I think that we as Christians are stewards, not owners of ourselves. We, you do not belong to yourself. You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body and spirit, which are God's. They belong to God. So I'm, I'm simply a steward of everything. Like the tithe is not the portion of my money that belongs to God and I get the rest. But rather, I'm just simply taking a portion of God's money that he's in, entrusted to me temporarily, stewardship, and I'm putting it where he wants it. And then I'll put the rest wherever I think he wants it. So I'm going to have to pay my bills. God wants you to pay your bills. That's good. You're not being selfish. You're just paying your bills. It's responsible. I'm being a good steward. You know, I'm going to maybe put some aside and put for, for savings or give some away to those who I feel have need of it or maybe make an investment or, or maybe I'll make a purchase because I feel like this is a good thing to make, a good purchase to make. And I do think that if we can afford it, it's fine to buy nice things because you can afford it. You're not, you know, stretching the credit card out in order to get that thing you want. But we see that God blesses uh, Israel like this. He gives them stuff above and beyond what they need because he simply likes to bless them. So if the Lord's blessed you with finances above and beyond what you need, cool. You know, that's great. Go for it. But even in your spending of that, do it as a steward. Do it as a steward. See, we are stewards. We are not owners of the things which we happen to have in our possession. My money is in that list. My time is actually in that list. That's why scripture says, redeem the time for the days are evil. That my time belongs to God. I, I'm entrusted with a season. I don't know how long it'll be. So far, it's been 37 years. That's how long my season of time has been so far that I've been entrusted with. It may be for another six months or it might be for another 30, 40, 50 years. 60, 70, I hope not that long. <laughs> I want to go home before it gets to that point. But I am entrusted with this time. And so I actually, I don't know about you, but I actually feel bad at the end of a selfish day. Like I feel guilty. I'm laying in bed and I'm just like, I feel lousy now, you know, and, and it's, and that in a sense, that's a good, bad feeling, you know, that's appropriate because I, I did waste. And I know there's a difference between I had some leisure time versus I actually wasted time. There's a, there's a, there's a trade-off there. That's somewhere there. I'm also a steward of my marriage. You know, every dad who has had a daughter who gets married, he thinks you better treat her right or I'm going to come get you kind of thing, right? Imagine how God views this, that he gives me one of his daughters to have in a stewardship temporarily, and I'm accountable to him for how I treat her. See, my marriage isn't actually mine. It's the Lord's, and I'm just a steward in this relationship, and I'm accountable to God, even above and beyond my accountability to my wife, which is real and is there as well, that I'm accountable to God and how I deal with this. So I'm a steward of that. I'm also a steward of my children. When you have kids, you're a steward of them. You're just a temporary, you know, person who has possession of them for a season. And you must give an account for, not for their behavior, but for your behavior as a parent um, with them. And you're, of course, a steward of whatever gifts you happen to have. So it's going to move from here saying, you know, whatever you have, minister it to one another. It's going to start to get into more detail on this. But the idea is you're responsible to God for using whatever gifts you've been given, whether they be financial, whether they be verbal skills. I know I'm a talker. I, I'm a talker. I, I get that. But I'm therefore responsible to use that thing for the Lord. It doesn't mean I can't use it for anything else, but rather anything I use it for, I'm doing that unto the Lord, whatever it happens to be. Remember the parable of the talents in Matthew 25? And there were these guys, and the short version is, they were each given a large sum of money. And one of them spent money and made investments and made more. Another one did the same thing. And a third one, well, he just made back and a little bit more. And the third one actually took the money, dug a hole, shoved it into the ground, covered it in dirt, buried it, hid it. And then when the master came back, he was like, hey, I was kind of scared and I didn't want to, I didn't want to mess it up. So I just hid it. And basically, if I can give you my paraphrased version, the master says, by hiding it, 
you messed it up. We are sometimes, we are the one called to, to, to take action in a place at a time or a season to step out and help others and be that person. But we're, we're just scared we'll get it wrong. But by not taking that action, we got it wrong. So we're a steward to, to minister whatever gifts I can to others, not presumptively like I'm an authority over everybody else, but just however I can to minister to one another, whatever stewardships God has, has given me to just go for it. And, um, and if fear slows you down, then just remember the parable of the talents and you'll at least be afraid of the right thing and it will actually speed you up. <laughs> so I think that would be a good way to look at it. <clears throat> Don't bury it. Don't bury it. So verse um, 11 he says, if anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. And this is actually the only sort of specific gifting he'll isolate. Next, he'll talk about those who minister, let him do it with the ability which God supplies. But first, he says, if anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. I can't tell you for sure why speaking is singled out among all the potential gifts. Perhaps because in the very next chapter, which we're almost up against here, chapter 5, he's going to talk about the, the shepherds or the leaders the, the, the pastoral type ministers that are that are in the church he's writing to. So maybe he's he's segueing over to that. But notice this. It doesn't say if anyone teaches. It says if anyone speaks. That's interesting to me. If anyone speaks. This may have to do with speaking gifts. Any sort of gift of speaking, which I think we've all had at some point or time, basically you have the place to use your mouth to glorify God or help somebody, assist someone in this place in their life. And we are not to speak arrogantly. So let's not take this the wrong way. Let him speak as the oracles of God, which I think the wrong way would be like, whatever you say, act like God says it. Speak as it's, as if it was the oracles of God. Now I have, I, I shouldn't have to say this, but I have to say this because I've heard pastors do this. I've heard, I've heard people who aren't pastors do this, that as soon as they start to talk about God, they act like they're the ultimate authority on all things go- about God. Rather than letting the Bible be the ultimate authority. I love like Q&A. We do Q&A every week with the students. We do Q&A here after the study. We do Q&A. But you will hear me say things like this. That's a great question. I don't know. Because I'm not going to just make something up and then act like my declaration is therefore the word of God because it came out of these glorious lips or something like that. But, <laughs> but that is what I sometimes hear from preachers. And I think that that's a danger. If the preacher doesn't know the difference between his ideas and God's word, there's a danger there. So what does it really mean when it says, speak as if it is the oracles of God, speak as the oracles of God? It means that what I am to speak is the oracles of God or the teachings of God. If I have a speaking gift, make sure that what I do fits with what this says. So I'm restricting myself to the oracles of God. I'm making sure that I don't teach beyond what the scripture says. I don't make up my own stuff. I don't add or take away. That, I think, is the idea behind it. There's really two ideas, but that's the main one, I think. So I'm limiting myself to God's oracles, and I'm presenting them. This is the second part. I'm presenting them as God's oracles. So I'm not presenting the Bible as though it's just God's like suggestions or, if, or it's like, well, it's optional. You know, you could take it or leave it. Well, some people think this, but no, when scripture says things like Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me straight from the Lord. Okay. There is no other way. There is no other truth. There's no other life apart from Christ. You need Jesus to be saved. You must have him or you cannot go to the Father. That is, I'm going to speak the oracles of God as though they are the oracles of God. So I'll let God's word be the final answer. And that's one of the reasons why, uh, like Sunday evenings, I like to tackle some controversial issues. Because, uh, well, not only do they just come up all the time in the scriptures, <laughs> it just, just so happens to be. But also because these are the areas where a lot of modern preachers are simply ignoring God's oracles and acting like they're not. You know, they're not speaking as the oracles of God. They're, 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 it's like speaking as though they can sort of weave a new Christianity that will fit the culture better. And I'll go, no, culture needs to change, not Christianity. Now, I don't want to have cultural Christianity and act like everyone needs to adopt that. But I don't want to change the oracles of God to fit culture. Rather, culture needs to change. That's the whole point. That's what conversion is all about here. So... Speakers are stewards. 
that's my that's my observation here. I'm I'm a I'm a speaker, therefore I'm a steward of this even this ability to speak or the or the things that I say. Jesus said that every every word will be brought into account. And so as I speak, as I open my mouth, you'll be like, man, it was just words. There's no such thing. It's just words. Because words aren't just. They're, those are words, man. Those are powerful. Those are powerful. So I can get myself into a lot of trouble, which is why James 3 says that I, those who speak shouldn't be too many. Let not many of you seek this position because there's a stricter judgment for you. And I think that means from God and from people, actually, because people will. I mean, you right now are listening to me and rightly deciding whether you think what I say is accurate or not. You should do that. That's a good thing for you to do. I mean, you don't have to be like the skeptic with their arms folded, like, I don't believe, the cynic, you know. But we have to be the person who's like just karate chopping everything you hear with discernment to divide truth from error, to divide fact from opinion. And that's, that's part of your job. That absolutely is. That, you don't have to agree with me because I'm, I'm a pastor. Um, that wouldn't work unless you only had one pastor you ever listened to because we don't agree with each other half the time. <laughs> well, on the non-essential issues anyway, there's a lot of stuff we don't agree about. Um, so, so you're in that job to judge me more strictly, but also the Lord judges me strictly. So this actually, I'm not, I'm not kidding here. It frightens me. It genuinely scares me because I'm like, I do not want to stand before the Lord after having misrepresented him and his word, after having mishandled the scriptures, that scares me. I remember a, a, a friend of mine who he was becoming a pastor, like he was getting ordained and he was telling me how he's, he's preparing himself for this ordination and I hate to use him as a bad example here because in a lot of ways he was a good example, but not in this story. But anyway, what happened is he was going through these different like doctrines and theological questions and he was studying to figure out what was his position on, you know, is the rapture, you know, pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, um, the millennial reign and what happens here and what happens there and what are, what's his view on tattoos and what's his view on this and all these different random questions, you know. And he says... I want to have an answer to all these questions because as a pastor, you should have an answer to all these questions. And then he said this, when I'm preparing a Bible study and I'm going to talk about one of these topics, sometimes I'm not sure what position I should take. So what I think I should do is just confidently pick a position and then preach it like the truth. And that was when I just was like, you ever have that moment, right? Where you're like, I have no idea how to respond to that <laughs> because I'm like, I'm like, I respected him. I was much younger. I was certainly not, uh, I wasn't even really teaching much at the time and stuff. And I just was like, that doesn't sound right to me that you're going to be uncertain, but preach it like God's word says it. That doesn't seem wise. And I slowly since then have adopted the position of when I'm not sure, I make it very clear that I'm not sure. I'll go, well, some people interpret it this way, some interpret it that way. I, maybe I lean a little bit this way, but I'm really not sure. And now let's discuss what really hangs on this doctrine. Nothing. I mean, because a lot of times the questionable teachings, very little hangs on those things. The, the, what God, the most important stuff is the most clear in the scripture. So we should, we should be a little scared, those of us who speak. We should think about our responsibilities more than our authority. And that's huge. That's huge. I think that applies to all of us. The steward thinks about his responsibilities. The owner thinks about his authorities. And I have a certain authority in the church, but this should not be the thing that occupies my mind. I should be thinking, hopefully, very humbly about anything like that. And I should be thinking, I'm responsible. Not, wow, look at the people who've come to hear me. But rather, wow, look at the people who I'm accountable for putting ideas in their head. I should be very real about this. Um, that I should always look at my responsibilities more than my authority. And this will help people, especially in their marriage relationships, in their fathering or their mothering and in their work things. Responsibility over authority becomes my obsession. I think that that's a healthy, godly stewardship mentality. <clears throat> I think that this would help everybody, including politicians. Uh, Romans 12 actually has a more complete listing of, of ver this very same topic about ministering to one another with the different gifts. So if you, in your own studying, if you like, dig into Romans 12. It lists specific gifts and specific ways in which you should try to use those. So if you're, if you're going to be giving, then do it cheerfully, that, like that kind of thing, the attitude you should have. But let's read on. Here in verse 11, it says, If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies. Now, the concept of just ministering is the word service or serving. 
That's the idea. So someone's like, I'm in ministry. What they're saying is, I'm in service. Like, I serve. That's what I do. I'm in the service industry. That's what I'm, I'm in. That's my job. I'm trying to serve other people. It's actually considered an insult in much of the world for someone to say, wow, you're such a servant. But in the Christian worldview, this is a huge compliment because you're like following Jesus, man. You're such a servant. That's such a, that's a compliment to you. So if anyone ministers, then let him do it as with the ability which God supplies. Now, this is not vocationally they're in ministry, like they're full-time on staff at a church. That's not the concept here. Rather, it's just, are they serving in any capacity, in any way? Whether they're doing it at home or at, or at their local fellowship or in some other location, it doesn't matter where. Here, this is ministry in the sense of serving in any capacity. And the way I minister is what's in question is do it as with the ability which God supplies. So turn with me to 1 Samuel 17. I want to give an example of, I think, an attitude that represents doing this. Serving not with my ability that I own, but as a steward of the ability which God has supplied me with. <clears throat> so whatever you're a steward of, use it. That's, that's the main thrust of this, is to use your stewardship. Whatever gifts or abilities or skills you have, take the fact that you have that skill as a calling to use that skill. That's the idea. Take the fact that you have this wealth as a calling to use it as a steward, that you have this ability or whatever it is. Just We're, we're just called to use those abilities um, <clears throat> and just go for it. That's why we say see a need, fill a need, you know, because usually the person who sees the need is the person who, who, who knows how to fill the need and nobody else does because that's their gifting. They get that. So 1 Samuel 17, 45. I'll just set it up briefly here. David and Goliath. Okay, there you go. <laughs> So, then verse 45, then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give it into our hands. I think... This is David ministering with the ability which God supplies. And that's why he's so confident. Because he's like, it's not me. It's not about me. This is the ability that God supplies. So you're going down. I mean, that's like, it, there's a great confidence that's here because he realizes what he's a steward of is the ability that God supplies. He actually then runs out there to go fight Goliath. He charges out after him, which is just very exciting as you're reading it, the passage. And of course, you realize who these people were, and this was a just thing. Um, it wasn't like murder or some horrible scenario like that. There are just, in the Christian church, there are too many timid servants, I think. Too many timid servants. That humble doesn't mean pretending I'm not good at what I'm good at. I know I'm a good communicator, but I look at that as a gift that God has given me. I know I'm not the best. I know I'm not the worst. I know I'm a good communicator. And that God has called me to minister his truth to other people. But this is not like me going like, here's you and here's the me. Good communicator. <laughs> like, okay, that would be arrogance and pride, right? No, it'd rather, look, here's you. God's given you stuff. And here's me. God's given me stuff. I'm just going to try and be faithful with it and give, give it back to the Lord for the season that he has me doing it until he tells me to do something else or whatever. I'm going to just do it unto him. I don't think that's arrogance. I think that that is a sense of confidence in the ability which God supplies. So I'm confident in his ability, not my ability. That's the point. It's not about me. I'm, I'm good at this and I'm good. Rather, it's the Lord. You've called me to do this and you're good at everything. So just you tell me what to do and I'm, I'm going to go do it. If it's your gifting, you should use it. Think of it this way. Um, there's scenarios where you've got to run out there and just go for it and serve. But there's, there's a, a, a certain hesitation. We've had this happen in the sanctuary where, where there's somebody who's causing a ruckus. And then the elders of the church are, are sitting near them. And then everyone around is like thinking like, I wish somebody would, you know, gently deal with this situation right here. And the elders sitting there thinking, do I do that? Or just do I not do that? And it's that uncertainty of knowing if I should, you know, throw my hat 
you know, into this scenario or if I should get involved. That's the thing. Well, that's when you match when it's your gifting and your callings, then it should push you over the edge to go, yeah, I'll get involved because this is something I'm good at. It's like, you know, someone falls over, passes out and you're an EMT. There's no question here. Get involved. You know, there's, there could be like, no one's allowed to approach the king, but then the king's eating his food and he drops his fork and up full speed comes one of the servants with a new fork. You're like, you just approached the king with a sharp weapon. What gave you the right? Hey, I'm the servant. This is, this is what I do. And then in a sense, as a servant, I can rush into a situation that, that, um, I might be timid about, but I know what I'm called to do. And so I just go for it. I think that that's a, a healthy thing to do. If you see a situation that fits your gifts, then just step out. Then just step out. Um, okay, verse 11. Uh, the rest of the verse here, as we keep reading, it says that in all things, the purpose of this is that in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. That God may be glorified. This is, again, this is the steward's mentality because as you're running out there to serve and do something for God, you're thinking, how will they perceive me? How will they view me? What will they think of what I'm doing? Well, hold on. Who is this about now? The steward thinks about how his master will be perceived, how he will be viewed, how this will impact him. And so I will step out and serve because it's about God's glory, not me. And so this is like a, uh, to quote my friend Manny, confidence through humility. The kind of humility that lets you step forward without the, the baggage of pride and arrogance, dragging around and, and messing up what you're doing. Because the, the owner says, how will this impact me? But the steward says, how can I give God glory in this thing that I'm doing? And that's the purpose. That's the point. It always comes to God's glory. Proverbs twenty five twenty seven says, to seek one's own glory is not glory. I love that verse. I love that verse. To seek one's own glory is not glory. And this flies in the face of so much of Hollywood and so much of the self-promoting stuff that we see that's out there. Whose glory are you seeking? Well, hey man, this is just how it's done. As if that ever excused anything. <laughs> but yeah, to seek one's own glory is not glory, but to seek God's glory, that is. Because God is deserving of glory. He's worth, he's worth it. Christians should be people that are committed to God's glory in their lives and in the specific situations that are in daily. Lord, how do I glorify you in this scenario? How do I give you praise, give you honor, give you glory in this? And to remind ourselves of that is so huge. And this, I think, is the heart of someone who loves God. If you love God, if you love God, you want him glorified. Let me give you an example. Let's suppose that you're at this baseball game, little league, and then you're your nephew comes up to bat, your, your daughter goes up to bat, your son goes up to bat, and you're cheering them on. You're like, come on. Yeah, you got this. You got this. And they hit it, and it just goes, and keeps going. It goes like 30 feet over all the heads of all the little kids, you know, because <laughs> they're all up at the front. And it just goes way back there. And then you're just like cheering them on. And you're like, go, Ebenezer, whatever their name happens to be. <laughs> And you're, you're hollering for them and they're tearing around the bases and then they come in and slide into home and you're like, woo, yeah. Why are you so excited? Why do you want them to do well in front of everybody? You love them. And as a Christian, if I love the Lord, I want him glorified in this world. I want him glorified in my life. I want him glorified in the lives of others, others around me. I just want God to be glorified because I love the Lord. That giving God glory and loving God are intimately connected. If I love the Lord, I want him glorified, which means that I'm going to put his glory above my own and above everybody else's in the room because he's first. He's first. Love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength first. Now, there's another reason for God to be glorified. <clears throat> and it says it right here in the verse, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom belong the glory and the dominion. That it's his. He owns it. Why should it be given to him? Because it belongs to him. He owns it. Revelation 4.11 says this. <clears throat> you are worthy, O Lord. Now, keep in mind, this is this passage, Revelation 4.11. It sets up all of the stuff that's about to happen in Revelation. Because it's you go from the letters to the churches to this passage in Revelation 4 and 5, which are basically saying glory belongs to God, glory belongs to the Son. And then you have wrath and judgment 
which is bringing what? Glory to God. So we're setting up God's glory as this, as this, this high and lofty thing so that we'll understand the context of the rest of these, well, a lot of Revelation. Of course, it doesn't end that way, but <clears throat> Revelation 4.11. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. They literally exist for God. I exist for him. Now, I may or may not acknowledge this in my life, but it is why I exist. Why did God make me for himself? I was made for him and I was made by him for his pleasure. This is his right. Glory belongs to God. And, but then when you try to define glory, that, that can be a challenge. If you've ever done this, like try to put a definition on the word glory that fits biblical statements. Have you ever been like, ah, oh, God, I glorify you. Glory to God. And you're like, what does that mean anyways? I actually have given a lot of thought to this. And I'm not saying I have the perfect definition, but I have one that helps me sort of make it real practical in my life, which is that giving God glory is like giving God credit. I think that if you take the word glory and just put the word credit there, that it captures a good chunk of what it means. Not the whole thing, but it captures some of it there. And to give God credit, so giving God glory is like giving God, this is why I can give him glory. Because it's, I mean, he's already glorious, but I'm giving it to him. Because I'm just, I'm acknowledging what he's done and who he is. I think that's a fair way to put it. Um, credit for God just being so great. So <clears throat> God deserves glory, but he also has dominion. Dominion. So glory is like credit and honor and praise and, and attention and just the value of God being acknowledged. But dominion is a wholly different word. Dominion is when you're in charge. You're dominating. I am the dominant one. I'm in dominion. Man was given dominion over the animals, over the earth. Right? This is a, a dominion over, over those things. And we've exercised that dominion. And we're not parasites on the earth. No, God has placed us here for that purpose. Now, it doesn't mean we're good stewards of it necessarily. And we could be much better. But it, it, we are called to that. Um, so God though, he has dominion over all things. Just think about it. If man has been given dominion on the earth, what's to be said of the dominion of the one who gave man dominion? I mean, what about his dominion? I mean, he's, he, it belongs to him. It's all his, everything. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. As the scripture says, it all belongs to him anyways. It's not just the Christian's property that belongs to God. It's all the property. <laughs> it's everything. It's time and space. It's, it's all the stuff. It all belongs to the Lord. He is not a steward. And this is why, rightly so, philosophically, you could say this, the rules that apply to men don't necessarily always apply to God. This is why if I were to flood the earth, it would be wrong. But God, who owns all things, can flood what he wants. It's his. Now, I know that he only does what is right. He does what's righteous and true and all that. But... But it's simply this, and I've been asked this question, like, how could God flood the world? How could, and I, I usually follow up with a response. I said, well, let me ask you a question. In the Christian worldview, if God really did create all things, does God have a right to do what he wants with his own creation? And I found two answers to this question. The only two answers I've ever received. One was yes. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I mean, yeah, I guess if he made it, he can do what he wants with it. Maybe I'll draw an analogy about it. If I, if I make a beautiful painting and then I destroy it, don't I have a right to destroy my own painting? Well, yeah. If someone else destroys it, that's wrong. That's the difference between having dominion and not here. But the other answer I've received was, I'm not going to answer that question. <laughs> so, so I think it's a good question to ask. Because the fact that he's made all things means that he has dominion over all things. And he really does have charge of everything. I'm not letting God into my life, really. I'm just accepting his terms. <laughs> Or rejecting them. You know, this is, this is how it is. He's gracious and he is loving, but he is not a steward. And he doesn't owe us anything. And um, it, it is just purely by his kindness and his grace. And this, this should cause us to appreciate that much more what we've received. So how do I then, in all things, God that glorify God? How is it that I make him glorified in all these things? I think it's by being that steward. That's how I do it. By being a good steward of the things that God has given me. I think this might come down to something that's kind of anti-American at the moment, although it didn't, it's not, classically this is very American, but, you know, the American dream, how it's sort of changed over time, 
you know, at one point the American dream was like being able to be independent, you know, support yourself and live with freedom and these sort now it's like get rich and famous. Like that's the American dream. Um, <clears throat> and people will say these phrases like follow your passions, follow your heart's desire. You can do anything you want. And I think this is all very bad advice as a Christian. I don't think I should follow my passions. I think I should follow my calling. I think I should follow my calling. And I know I'm, I know what I'm called to be as a husband. I know what I'm called to be as a man. I know what I'm called to be as a pastor. I know what I'm called to be as a citizen. I should follow my calling. I know what I'm called to be as a good steward with whatever gifts God happen, happens to have given me. I should follow my calling, not my passions. I think, to give you a, a movie quote, because I happen to like this movie, Lord of the Rings... <laughs> Now, if you read the books, the characters are they're, they're full of so much integrity and so much depth. It's really, really great. I love reading the books. Lord of the Rings is awesome. But one of the characters who comes across with as much integrity in the movie as he does in the book is Aragorn. Aragorn is the coming king, right? He is the strider, he's called in the beginning of the film. And Aragorn shows up, and he is the heir to the throne. But he doesn't want it. Because he realizes that it just comes with sacrifices and burdens and responsibilities. But he decides to give up his life of freedom that he would just do what he's supposed to do and take it up. And if you watch the film with this in mind, realizing this is, this is what's going on in his head, you know, then you, you see why he acts certain ways. And he's just like, okay, I got to go here. I, I have to do it because he's worried about his calling, his responsibilities, not his desires. This is such a good example, even though it's fake, <laughs> for the rest of us. And we could see Jesus giving this example in real life for us when he says, Lord, if there's any other way, Father, then let this cut pass from me. And he says, nevertheless, let your will be done. And he steps out and he takes the cross. Because there was no other way, and it was not about his, what he felt like doing at the time. It was about following what was right. And so the same sense, being a steward is about what I ought to do, not what I want to do. So I think this is great advice for us is to just do what you're supposed to do and don't ask what you feel like doing in life. This is really good advice as a believer. The more I ask what I want to do, the more I hesitate at what I ought to do. And this might be, oh my, it's like, it's like you're asking me to take up my cross daily and follow Jesus, man. It's like, yeah, that's pretty much on the nose. You got it. Now, the irony of this is you'd think this would leave us miserable, but it ends up in my personal experience leaving us more satisfied. I find that every day I live just for me, I'm pretty much miserable. I don't, I don't get it, but it's just the reality of it. It's like, it's like a little sample of what it means to try to save your life but lose it, you know? Every day I live for me is the day of like, oh, that was a waste. But the days where I live unto the Lord and I give my life to God and I follow my responsibilities, my calling, my stewardship to give God glory, that's the day I go, I go to bed and I'm just like, oh man, I'm good. Because what we think will fill us empties us. And what we think will empty us often presents a vessel to be filled by the Lord. Proverbs 27.20 says that the eyes of man are never satisfied. Never. So the things I want end up never, never satisfying me. But John 4.34, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. He's like, this is what's going to fill me, satisfy me. This is going to take care of my needs and my longings. I'm going to do God's will and take care of the tasks that he has called me to accomplish here on earth. And he found it satisfying. And I'm like, maybe that's for me too. <laughs> Just maybe. So it's ironic. It leaves us more satisfied. Um, so one way in which I can glorify God in all things is to simply take care of my responsibilities be, just be responsible for whatever it is. In fact, this is something I feel like for those of you who, who have kids is give them responsibilities at a young age, you know, give them responsibilities because that's something our culture has unfortunately taken away from kids is they have no responsibilities until they hit like 19. It's it, sadly, unless, unless they're given to them by parents, you know, and in which case, bravo, good job, parents. You know, we try to give them responsibilities here in our youth ministry, but we can't do that for every single kid that shows up because we, we can't have all of like 40 kids in the sound booth, you know, <laughs> they don't all fit, but, <clears throat> but yeah, there's other ways to give God glory though. And I think that they fit with first Peter. And one of the ways is in trials. Um, I think so often we stumble in trials. Trials cause us a lot of angst. 
Um, like Peter, who said, Lord, I'd lay down my life for your sake. But then the next thing that happens is the trial shows up and he's much weaker than he thought he was, his own perception of his own ability. And confusion comes and he denies. Uh, Job certainly went through some major trials that caused major consternation in his life. And we can glorify God in these trials. And this, this fits with the first Peter passage to give God glory in all things, to actually shift our thinking so that as I'm in a trial, I go, Lord, this is really bad. But rather than worrying about bringing myself relief right now, show me how to give you glory right now. Show me how to give you glory right now. Um, and that may actually end up bringing you more relief than anything else. I think that Job's the ultimate example of this, and I think that Job's a book that we should all read and realize, just if I can give you a quick summary, the first two chapters are the, are the physical attack on Job and spiritual as well. The, almost the entire rest of the book is all of the weird internal battles that him and his buddies face when they see suffering or experience suffering. Showing us that what? The real battles on the inside is not the thing that happened. Oh, Satan's attacking you because you, because you got this disease. Well, the disease is just the thing that's causing the actual battle in your heart over what, the, over what you're feeling and experiencing. The battle's on the inside, you know. But I think there's some different reasons for suffering. I, I want to just talk about a few of those for a minute. Um, one of the reasons for suffering, and this is, is, should be obvious, right? It's just natural consequences of sin. You know, just natural consequences of sin. And then you might go, well, Mike, isn't that just karma? Like, isn't that karma? Like, everybody believes in karma, right? And I go, no, they don't believe in karma. They think they do. What they believe in is reaping what you sow. Let me explain. <laughs> karma is actually not the same as, um, I'm driving down the street, I get mad, I, like, throw my apple out the window at this guy, and five seconds later, <clears throat> I get in a car crash. And they're like, karma. That's not karma. Karma would be the result of if I did that in my past life, and then it affected me today. Me and Allison watched a movie one time. It was one of those, like... Like, you know, martial arts movies where the guy, you know, hand fights a bunch of people on the movie. Well, at the end of the movie, when you think he's about to have his great victory, he's the good guy, right? And it was like subtitled and she hated it. <laughs> it was like a foreign film. And, um, and we're watching it and, and he's like, oh, he's, he's on this mountain of enemies fighting them all off. And then it's like, oh, da, 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 and, and they kill him. And you're like, wait, what? He's the good guy. Like, wait, what? And, and then there's a text on the screen that says, well, he fought bravely, but because of his bad karma from past lives, he died. End of movie. <laughs> We're like, what, are, what was that? What was that? Like, this is not a very good movie. It was so weird. And I was like, really? What is the karma thing? And so I did a little bit of research on it, just thinking about it. Karma, it turns out, is simply this life and the hardships in this life or the good of this life being a result of past lives. It is not a belief that what you did Monday affects you Tuesday. That's a biblical belief called reaping what you sow. So when people say, I believe in karma, I want to look at them and say, no, you don't. You just think you do. You say karma, but you mean reaping what you sow. Like, for instance, do you think that you were born into that wealthy family because you were such a good person in your previous life? Do you think you were born into that poverty family or born with this crippled limb because you were such a bad person in a previous life? Is that what you think? Then you don't believe in karma. Yeah, it's not really the way. Um, Galatians says that we should not be deceived because God is not mocked for whatever a man sows that he will also reap. And this, this is throughout the book of Proverbs. I mean, Proverbs reads like reaping what you sow, right? Evil pursues sinners, but to the righteous good shall be repaid. It says Proverbs chapter 13, verse 21. Basically, immoral actions have bad consequences. Good actions have good consequences. And you can add onto the end of this, eventually because it is a sense of eventually in the scriptures that's for sure it's not necessarily right away but it is eventually so the first reason for suffering i see i'm going to give you five by the way is um just natural consequences of sin the bible definitely talks about that sometimes i'm suffering because i did something wrong um, or possibly because someone else did something wrong um, number two has to do with punishment or judgment and i think that we could look at the flood as a great example of this like the flood's not like this is just a natural consequence. Rather, this is like intervention on behalf of God to bring judgment down. Um, other examples are like Herod, King Herod the Great being eaten by worms because he wouldn't give glory to God. Um, it's, it's like a way of stopping evil. Like, that's it. You're out of here kind of thing. Then the third type of suffering, reason for suffering, I should say, is because of chastening or because of a lesson that God is trying to teach us. 
that God either causes or perhaps simply allows, like in the case of Job, because there's a lesson he wants to teach us or perhaps even to teach others who are there. Remember, it wasn't just Job who learned. Many, many times this happens to Israel. The bronze serpent. Remember the serpents came and they bite the people and then they're trying to be taught a lesson. Remember when the birds came down and they ate until the meat came out of their nostrils and the idea here is like you're learning, you're getting taught a lesson. You're being taught a lesson because you're complaining. Um, Gentile nations would come and attack Israel. It's like a chastening or a lesson that they were learning. Uh, We could look at stories from David or Nebuchadnezzar who was made mad for a season and came down and his hair grew and all this weird stuff. And then he looks up and he goes, Oh, and I get, he finally gives glory to God and then he's restored. And so there was a lesson that was there. So it's like a, not the same as like the flood. And it's like, and what did you learn? You know, there's not a lot you're learning at that point, except for, you know, the hard way and there's nothing you can do about it. Um, a fourth reason why suffering happens that I think scripture supports is because God is making an example. He's not only judging, but he's causing you to become the example in that judgment so others can see. And we see this in Egypt. The 10 plagues were meant to be a public example of God refuting the idea that these Egyptian gods existed and refuting the idea that they had any power. And so he's making an example of Egypt. He's making an example of of those gods. Um, Ananias and Sapphira is a New Testament example of an example because they lied and they died. And you're like, that's a pretty extreme thing. But if you read the text, you'll see it's because God wanted a public example, it seems to me, so that it says the rest of the people feared and either one of two things happened. They either wouldn't draw near the believers. They didn't even come near them or they came very near and they were like, because it purified the fellowship and the fakers didn't come anymore because they were like, I don't want that to happen to me. (laughs) And so um, it actually purified them. So then the, the fifth reason, so it's natural consequences, punishment or judgment. Um, the third one, chastening or lessons. The fourth is as an example. And the fifth is simply for God's glory. A broad category for God's glory. You can think of the man born blind. And then Jesus was asked, why was this man born blind? Was it his sin or his parents? And he goes, no. It was for the glory of God. That was it. It was just for God's glory. So the problem comes when I'm trying to figure out why is this suffering going on? There's a hurricane, there's a tornado, there's a flood, there's a death, there's a heart attack, there's a, someone born with a problem. And I'm going, was it one? Was it four? Was it two? Was it five? What caused this to happen? Now, sometimes it's, it's good to ask, Lord, I'm suffering here. What can I learn from this? I mean, there's always something to learn. But there's times where it's clearly, you know, Number one, the natural consequences of sin. You're like, okay, well, I've got this problem. You're like, well, I, I lost my job and now I'm suffering in poverty. And you're like, okay, well, why did you lose your job? Well, I kept coming an hour late every day. <laughs> really, why? Well, because I have this drinking problem and I, I can't get up on time in the morning. It's like, okay, so I'm going to think that's a number one, you know. This is natural consequences of sin and hopefully a chastening and a lesson to learn here as well. Um, so sometimes you know, but the fact that it's consequence could also be chastening. And it's certainly, every, su- every ounce of suffering is going to be number five. It's going to bring God's glory in some way or another. God will see to that. But we can't always figure out the answers. And this is just great advice for us to simply go, I don't know. I don't know. People ask me, Mike, what's your opinion about Hurricane Katrina? And the devastation that happened in New Orleans, was that God's judgment on New Orleans because of such and such and such and such? And my answer is clear. I don't know. Like, I did not get a phone call before this happened with the Lord explaining to me why this happened. I've heard people make a case for it being judgment because they say this and this and this. And I've heard people who are like, no, I don't think it was judgment. I think it was just natural disasters because we live in a fallen world. And I go like, I don't know. Like, how am I supposed to know? I can't dismiss it and say it's not, but I'm also not going to throw the accusations and say it is because I am not in the place to know. And so I'm just going to kind of get on the fence and say, it's, I'm not, I'm not certain. Could be, could be, could be. It's certainly number five though. And I'm certainly going to look to see God glorified through that disaster and what's going on. But let me give you an example. In Luke chapter 13, we read about this. Um, There were present at that season, 
some who told him, Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Pilate had killed these Galileans and while they had come to sacrifice, so their blood and the animals they were sacrificing mingled. And Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? Because that's what they supposed, right? Oh, well, well, they got killed. They must have been extra bad. I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them. So there was a group who, uh, this, this tower fell down, a building collapsed, and it killed 18 people. And he says, those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, this is very different than Jesus saying, they didn't deserve that. Actually, Jesus is saying, you all deserve that. This is very different. So he would not look at the Hurricane Katrina victims. And I mean, I'm not talking about children here or something like that. But I'm talking about grown adults who have lived lives where they've all committed sin and fallen short of God's glory. And he would not look upon them and say, you know, they didn't deserve any of that. They were just totally innocent in in the eyes of God for everything. He'd say, you think that that was judgment? Tell you, judgment's coming for all of you. You need to get saved. That would be a biblical perspective. And that's one of the reasons why I don't try to figure it out when I don't know. Because I'm like, hey, what happened over there should by all rights happen over here. <laughs> and so by God's grace, it has not. I think I'll look it on that side instead. Um, sometimes you can tell other times you just trust the Lord. Um, okay, well, we're going to actually pause because of the time. Uh, but we'll pick up on verse 12, and we're going to be starting next week on this. I, I'm just going to read verse 12 to you because I like giving you previews. But it says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when he is glor- his glory is revealed, you, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If your reproach for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part he's blasphemed, but on your part he is glorified. And we're going to talk about this issue of trials and strange trials and our response to those trials, um, the nature of those things, and uh, and we'll just get into all the details. And we'll, we'll continue on through, um, pretty sure we'll finish that chapter for sure next week, maybe even get into chapter 5 a little bit. All right, well, let's pray. Um, Father, we thank you for tonight and for the time in your word. We pray, Lord, for wisdom as I'm preparing for what to be sharing in the next uh, coming uh, months, that you would guide and direct that, Lord, so that it would be according to your will. Father, we all pray for that, Lord. Please help me to be led by you, to led led by you, Lord, to be the, a, a huge benefit to those who come to the Sunday evening messages and a, and a huge benefit to those who see them online. Um, even around the world, Lord, we just pray that you would bless that and guide it for your glory, that in all things you would be glorified. You'd be glorified, Lord, through Jesus Christ. We love you, Father. We pray for your blessings on us so that we might be good stewards of all that we have and all that we are unto you. Help us to focus this week. Help us to focus on, on doing what we ought to do, not what we want to do, doing what we're called to do, not what we desire. And we pray that in that we would find ourselves um, eating, partaking of the satisfaction that comes from doing the will of God. In Jesus' name, 